we're continuing on with what we began last week to examine some of the, the lessons that Jesus was teaching his disciples before he entered into his passion, before he entered into his death and resurrection. But now we're looking back on those passages with, uh, with more intense light. Now that Christ has been risen, that we know, as I proclaimed on Easter Sunday, that we have the power of the resurrection to change our lives today. We're going back now and we're examining what Christ has been saying prior to his death so that we may see it in the light of the resurrection. Last week we looked at the good shepherd and we talked about that we are to know the voice of the shepherd and we're to follow where he leads us. And you are probably going, easier said than done, Alex. Well, what, I, what you said about last week, you will say definitely about this week. Because today we're going to talk about loving each other. Which is, is hard, if not harder, than hearing the voice of the shepherd and following. I would point out to you, sometimes we t- tend to think in terms of, you know, well, what is God's will for my life? What does he want me to do? How does he want me to spend his time? I think we can say beyond a shadow of a doubt... What Jesus wants us to be preoccupied with is learning how to love one another. For he, you see, today in our gospel lesson, he gives it to us as this new and great commandment. So let's look at it together. It's hard for me. I know I'm an extrovert and a pastor and all that stuff, but it's hard to love people. you know. And when you love most people, it makes loving the few people that are hard to love even harder, if that makes any sense. So we're all in the same boat together. So let's look at this. First of all, just to give you an understanding of where we are in the, in the gospel, John 13, as I said, it's read on Monday, Thursday. It's the, it's the reason we say Monday, Thursday. It's the, it's the mandate of Christ that we're to love, which is where that word Monday comes from. Christ is beginning his farewell discourse. It's his last will and testament, if you will. It's his last chance to speak to the disciples before he goes into his suffering. Now, it goes from chapter 13 to chapter 17, so it's a rather long final farewell. It's a a, a long sermon, if you will, uh, which, amen, I appreciate. I know I appreciate, and you guys appreciate a long sermon. But Jesus is going to talk about many things in this long sermon, this last farewell discourse. But he mentions all three of the main points right here in our few verses. The lectionary only gives us these, these, these four verses today, but, but look at what he talks about. First of all, he talks about glorification. He talks about himself being glorified. I made mention of the fact that Judas leaves and Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified and the Father glorified in him. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about his cross. He's talking about... His willingness to be obedient even unto death to go to the cross in obedience to the Father and to offer his life as a sacrifice for the world. He is worthy of praise and honor because Jesus, who was God, became man, is willing to sacrifice himself. He is glorified through his cross. Jesus will talk more about that throughout the rest of the passage. That's verse 31 and 32. If you're following with me, it's uh, page 900 in your pew Bible. Next, he talks about his departure, his exodus. This is very practical to us who live in the modern age because oftentimes, as a matter of fact, I can't remember a time when I didn't talk to a new Christian and one of their frustrations was, well, I can't see Jesus. 
I can't talk to him. I can't do like Thomas and put my, my hands into his scars. It's so different now. Jesus understands that and he talks about his departure because he wants to prepare his people for the fact that they're going to relate to him, yes, but in a different way. He also explains to them that when he goes away, he will bring another comforter, another counselor, the Holy Spirit, who we will celebrate at the service of Pentecost in a couple of weeks on June 9th, and the gift of the Spirit. And, and, and again, I think the lectionary is, is, as we think about the resurrection and we, we read Jesus' commands to us, we are longing to be empowered to be able to accomplish the things he calls us to. And so if you're a bit frustrated, it's okay, because you're not meant to do it on your own. You're meant to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the lectionary is, is, is making us, you know, started getting us thirsty for the Holy Spirit and the, and the gift of the Spirit being poured out. So he talks about his glorification. He talks about his departure. But then he gives the command in the last two verses that we are to love one another. Jesus reveals that he is... He is modeling for us. As a matter of fact, he is the demonstration of what love actually is. Love is not a feeling or an emotion. Love is an action. It is the laying down of one's life for someone else. It's the surrendering of myself for another person. Substitution for myself for them. Dying in their place. This is what Jesus says he demonstrates and defines love. This is the agape. This is the God-type love. It is self-sacrifice. It's self-emptying for the benefit, for the need of others. My New Testament professor, Rod Whitaker, took 14 years to write a commentary on, on the Gospel of John. Rod said, this is it. Willing and doing the best for another person. Willing and doing the best for another person. Well, that's what I want us to look at today for a few minutes. We're not going to exhaust the topic, but we need to continually challenge ourselves to say, are we growing in our ability to love others, to love one another and to love our neighbor as ourselves? For this is the command that Jesus gives. And I suggested last week that this should be sort of a checklist for us, a, a checkup, if you will, Last week to say, are we listening? Are we cultivating an ability to hear the voice of the shepherd and then to obey what he tells us to do? And now secondly, to, to, to hear the command to love one another, to grow in that love. Well, Jesus defines it a little bit for us. He says it's a new commandment. It, he's expanding, first of all, on the command that's given to us in Leviticus. And, and it, what a great job Justin does of, of reading the lecture, you know, the lecture. Lectionary. I, I wanted to stand up and applaud, particularly the Revelation passage, but, but he, does, he, he reads with such authority the Word of God. And, and, but in that first lesson, we're, we're told Leviticus is very clear that we are to care for our neighbor. And he spells it out in detail, doesn't he? He says it looks like um, not, not getting it over on someone, even though you have the ability. You know, I love, you don't, don't curse a deaf person. Don't put a stumbling block in front of a, uh, in front of a, uh, a blind person. Why? Because God will judge you. <laughs> because there is one greater. You may be able to get away from it. You know, you think, you know, you know you've, you've maybe had a, a relative that was hard of hearing. 
and you got away with saying some, you know, some bad things, you're like, well, I'm not doing that or whatever, you know, because they can't hear me anyway. Well, guess what? The Lord hears us. And so Leviticus says we are to love our neighbor. We are to be holy, to be set apart as God himself is holy and set apart. And it goes through. We're to, we have to figure out how to love our neighbor. What does that look like? Well, Leviticus says it's to, it's to not go to the edges of your field and, and pick up every piece of fruit, every, every, uh, everything that your, your property yields, but to leave the, the edges for the poor. Now, none of us are farmers in this room, except me, and I don't grow anything, except hopefully churches. But we have to figure out how we'll take what the Lord has given us and, and make sure that we're caring for the poor, caring for those who don't have enough. It's commanded here in Leviticus 19. We're to, we're to love our neighbor, and love our neighbor means something practical. It means taking care of those who don't have enough. It means not taking advantage of people that we can get away with taking advantage of. It means not bearing false witness. It means, it means being concerned and not having hate in our heart for neighbors that we might be driven to revenge. And it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a high calling to say that we're to care for each other. But the, the idea of loving neighbors is not foreign to pagan cultures and other societies. It's not as if, as if the, 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 when Jesus said we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, that it was the first time anybody ever heard that. I have two neighbors across the street from me. This weekend I was looking over my sermon note, and I'm looking out my front window, and, and there's my, nem, nem, my neighbor Dean, and there's my neighbor Jim. And for weeks... Dean has been helped. Yeah, Jim and Dean, believe it or not, that's their names. I don't, I don't make these things up. And Jim has been, Dean has been helping Jim remodel all of the bathrooms in his house. Jim is retired, and he's preparing his bathrooms for a time when he and his wife might not be able to get around as easily. And so he wants to make them uh, ADA compliant. And so Dean, who's a younger guy, is, uh, is helping Jim do that. That is loving neighbor. I have no idea... If either of them are followers of Jesus, I'm getting to know them. I know their names, and I'm starting to be in a relationship with them. I don't know. They've lived across or next to each other for years, and they're demonstrating a, a love for each other. Jesus, though, is calling us to an even deeper love. He's calling us not to just love the people that we uh, like, to not just uh, to love the people that we have to be in close proximity to, but to love our neighbors as ourselves, which is, I mean, let's face it, we love ourselves. And then this, in this new commandment, to love one another. It's not, people say, well, is this being as different from loving my neighbor? Well, it's just an intensification of the command to love my neighbor. Loving one another becomes a starting point. It becomes a more deep and committed love than even loving neighbor because it's loving those who are also in loving relationship with our Lord. Which is why Christians oftentimes talk about being brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, a, it's not to negate or to take away from the command that we are to love our neighbors, but we are to also love one another with an intensity. Jesus defines it. He says, this is the kind of love... As I have loved you, he says, so you are to love one another. Oh, that's all, Jesus? As you've loved us, we're to love one another. You who are about to go to the cross and offer yourself for us, to be beaten and humiliated, to be separated from your Father in heaven, 
That's what we're supposed to do? Oh, okay, well, gotcha, now, no problem, right? But it's that same, it's that love, it's that self-sacrificial love, it's, it's intense, it's, it's beyond just the love of neighbor, it is loving one another with a willingness to, to give up of ourselves for the other. Jesus also says, this will be the measure by which the world judges you, that you love one another. And this shall they know that you're my disciples. Not your devotion to God, not how big a building you have or what great works of service you do, how much you live with integrity in your own individual lives, but how you love one another, Jesus says, by this they will know that you're my disciples. It's like we get, the, we get the exam question ahead of time, but here's the one question, or here's the one thing that will be on the exam. How well did you love one another? That's how the world will know that you're my disciples, Jesus says. Well, John the disciple is talked about by the early church fathers. Uh, this was something that John, the, the apostle, the disciple who wrote the the Gospel of John, he, he was fixated on this understanding that we are called to love one another. As a matter of fact, Jerome, St. Jerome, says that the, the church tradition is that as very, very old John the disciple would go around. Remember, he was the last disciple, the only disciple not martyred. As he would go around and visit congregations, much like a bishop, he would come in and he would say, little children love one another. Wherever he went, that would be his re- repeating refrain. Little children love one another. To the point that the disciples began to be a little frustrated with John. John, you seem to have like one repeating line. Why do you keep telling us to love one another? And John, Jerome says, was quoted as saying, if that is done, nothing else is necessary. Pretty important. Tertullian, I'm going to throw a few church fathers' names out at you. You should know who Tertullian is. Tertullian, one of the church fathers living in Rome, he said of the pagans, the pagans said how those Christians love each other. They're willing to even lay down their lives for one another. The early church was marked by it. This is what it looked like. Not caring about yourself more than others, but in fact being willing to sacrifice even your very life for others. Not surprisingly that after the empire, after Constantine becomes converted to Christianity and Christianity becomes more socially acceptable in society, there is a decrease in this this characteristic of overwhelming sense of love for one another. Isn't that interesting? Um, by the time that uh, St. Chrysostomum, the third and last church father that I'm going to quote, Chrysostomum comes along, we, we hear and we read about Chrysostomum chastising his congregations for their lack of love for one another. So obviously the church had grown and waned in its love. It's something we have to be constantly aware of. If Jesus is commanding it to us, and if it's the, the one measure by which the world will know if we're 
Christ's disciples, then we should be paying attention to it and spending as much time as we possibly can. So I said, well, you know, what, Lord, how do I, how do I explain this? You've, there's not a whole lot of, of explanation in these few verses. You just give us the command. I, I can speak from my own experience of how I've learned to love people, and I'll maybe add a few of those things, but I, I, I didn't want to bring that to you. So I thought, well, what, what, just as I said, that, that the rest of the farewell discourse is to expand upon the things Jesus is saying. Let's look at what Jesus says about love later on in the discourse. And so I began to read through the, the discourse. And sure enough, chapter 15, Jesus begins to talk about bearing fruit. And that fruit being love. And I don't know if you know this passage. You probably do. I learned it as a kid. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him. Miss, Miss Beth knows that I know, sorry. Anyway, you, anyway, I am the vine, you are the branches. Do you know that? Do you know that math, that John chapter 15 verses? If you abide in me and I abide in you, the same will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I'll be honest with you. I've always sort of struggled with that whole passage. You know, it's like, what is cleaning the branches? I get the pruning part. I've definitely experienced that. But what is this bearing fruit and, and abiding in me and I in him? What is this about, Jesus? And and it dawns on me that as you, if you read Jesus' command that we're to, we're to grow in love for one another into John 15, all of a sudden it makes sense. The fruit that we're to bear in our lives is love. Now that's helpful to me for a couple of reasons. First of all, because I know that it takes a long time for fruit to be produced. And so there's a sense in which Jesus is acknowledging that there's a patience that comes and a process that comes. You are not expected to walk out this door and be willing to lay down your life for anybody else in this room. That is something that grows within us just as fruit is produced. That is encouraging to me. I have been a Christian since I was 15. I believe that I am learning and, and growing in my ability to love people, not just the people I like, but the people that are, as we say, as Bishop Neal says, extra grace required people. You know any extra grace required people? Are you an extra grace required person? It's a process. Secondly, I'm encouraged by John 15, and I just encourage you to look over that and read over that. That really the first. 11 verses or so is really what I'm referring to. It's found on page 901, so you don't have to turn a long way from the sermon text. But I'm also encouraged because Jesus says, if you abide in me and I abide in you, the same will bring forth much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I memorized it in King James Version, which is why the be thrown in there. Thank you, Baptists, for the word of God in me. Ye can do no thing with part for me. It's, I'm encouraged because I realize this is not about me just mustering up the will to offer my life to you, to sacrifice my time, uh, to, to help you do a project that I don't really care about and, and is going to mean that I'm going to be behind on the things that I need to take care of or for me to spend extra time speaking to somebody. It's, it's this, this process, this is not something that I'm going to do in myself. This is something that's going to come as I abide in Christ. As I fellowship with Him. 
for my, um, man, there aren't a lot of names today, but for my doctoral class that I'm taking in June, I'm reading about Leslie Newbegin. And Newbegin was a, a bishop of the church. He served in South India among the Christians. He went there. He was uh, English, but he was a bishop of South India. And he, he wrote, like, for 50 years, the man just produced book after book after book. But it wasn't like sort of like, you know, just rewording the same things and, and republishing it like some popular Christian authors do today. It was, it was like new stuff on all sorts of different areas. And, and so this class is on Leslie Newbegin. And I begin to read some of his stuff. And one of the things that he talks about is how do we know God? When he's writing in response to some enlightened thinkers of the day, some sort of Christian revisionist ideas. And he says, we know God not as an objective truth, but we know God relationally. We know God the way we know him in person. And that requires that I open myself up to you as a person, and that requires that you respond and open yourself up to me. And then if both parties do not open themselves up and be honest and, and enter into a relationship, it is impossible for me to know you. We can read biographies about famous people, but really we don't know them the way we would know them if we were in relationship with them. And Newbegin says this is the same with God. We know him experientially. We know him as we fellowship with him. We know him as we cry out to him, Lord, why are you asking me to love that person? They are such a pain. It is in the conversation with the Lord that we are abiding in him. And that he begins to impart with us a love for people. You know, young couples, I know I say this a lot, but I'll say it again. Young couples come to me who are struggling in the first years of marriage. Couples come to me at other points in their marriage too, struggling. But young couples come and, and I always say to them, fake it till you make it. <laughs> Keep treating your spouse in loving actions until the feelings come back. Feelings are all over the place, right? But committed acts of love is really, at the end of the day, anybody's been married for a while knows this. It's, it's the committed action. It's the commitment. It's the fact that I'll know you're there tomorrow, whether you like me today or not. And in that process, we begin to grow in our love for the spouse. It's in the same way God begins to give us a love for other people. But it, it doesn't come simply from our own will, but it comes from abiding in Christ, from being in a relationship with Him, being constantly reminded of His great love for us and willingness to be in covenant relationship with us even when we've been ugly and unlovable and shameful and rebellious downright mean and yet when while we were yet sinners Christ died for us let that love that is with the Lord come abide in that and, and then begin to love out of that in, in obedient actions and God will increase your love for other people I, I've seen it I've seen it you know Remember, 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 remember the Titans at the movie? You got the two football teams, one all white, one all black, that get merged in Virginia. And that one line where the guy says, I was I hated you, but I realized that all I was I was hating my brother. 
You know, it's like it's in relationship with people that we begin to see them not as we first are inclined to see them, the, the negatives, the, the things that we dislike, the things that are different about us, but we begin to see the person that Christ loved and died for. And to see the, the things that God has gifted them with. I mean, some of you, I'm not going to name names, who started to call somebody and say, hey, can I talk about you in the sermon? But I didn't. But there's some of you that have had to learn to love me. Right? I get that. I, I am, I'm fly by the seat of my pants, right? I'm, I'm Indiana Jones, making it up as I go along. We'll figure it out when we get there. And for some of you who are temperament, you want to plan everything and have it all organized, that is the most frustrating thing in the world. But you've learned to love me, and I've learned to love you. And together, Christ has been making us into a body. Now, the point comes where we love each other enough to even when we we have trouble with each other's personality types or temperaments that we, we just, we're just family, you know. The challenge is to continue to have those open hearts to love one another as God brings new people in. Or as he calls us to love people that aren't in our community. Maybe they're in a different church that baptizes differently or thinks differently about women's ordination and Whatever else. Then the challenge becomes to, to also say, Lord, will you give me a love for them? Help me to abide in you so that I can begin to love them as I love these people that are in my local church. And on and on and on. But lest I leave you with this idea that this is this work and it's so hard, I want to remind you one more thing that Jesus says in John 15, and that is... In this is your joy fulfilled, that you, that, you, that you learn to produce this fruit. Let me just read it to you because it's too important. Verse 11 of John 15. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And what's the, what's the, why is, what's the things he's been speaking? That you should produce fruit. And what is the fruit? It's learning to love one another. It's where joy comes from. Newbegin also says that we learn to know God in community. In the interaction with one another, as we talk about God and as we learn to love one another, God's presence is manifest and we understand Him more, which is why I think that the end of our lectionary is today, the, the Revelation 19, is the passage that again Justin read so powerfully it's this image of the, the, the people of God the, those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb Jesus the Lamb who was sacrificed for the sin of the world but that was raised from the dead Jesus who comes to judge the living and the dead Jesus at the end of time stands and he's surrounded by uh, all the multitude that is the body of Christ those who have learned to love one another. And I don't know if you caught it, but at the very end of the passage, I didn't catch it until right before the first, uh, first sermon, but at the very end of the passage, why can't I find Revelation? Revelation 19, I don't have my glasses on, that's what the problem is. At the very end, 
Justin read this, but I don't know if you caught it or not. He, he says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. That's us. We're the bride of Christ. We're being prepared as the body of Christ, the community of followers. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. That might not excite the guys in the room, but that excites the ladies in the room. Beautiful adornment, a beautiful gown to wear. Metaphorically, he's talking here, but he's, he's saying we've been, we've been clothed in, in linen, and pure and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. How does the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, prepare for the Lord Jesus Righteous deeds of the saints. And what are those deeds? It's learning to love for another. Sacrificial. It's messy. It's hard as that may be. It's the command. It's the measure by which the world will go for his disciples. And it's how we prepare for his return. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.